MSW Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, January 31st, 2022. Today, the 1-6 committee has subpoenaed 14 of the fake electors and one assistant press secretary. Several members of Congress have written a letter to Joe Biden demanding the memo that addresses the legality of canceling student debt. Donald suggests he might pardon some of the 1-6 defendants and Spotify is scrambling after Joni Mitchell and Neil Young ghost the platform. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Hello, hello. How was your weekend, my lovely? My weekend was warm. I mean, that's one of the wonderful things. The weather has been beautiful in Los Angeles. I'm sorry to rub it in. I know that a lot of the country was under, on the East Coast, a tremendous amount of snow. And I hope that those of you who lost power, especially in like up in the Cape and stuff, Massachusetts are safe and warm and just, it's, you know, it's, it's beautiful unless you have to be out in it or affected by it. Mm. Yeah, Florida got down to like 17 with a wind chill or something. That's bananas. Wow, hell literally almost froze over. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> listen, people, listen, we love parts of Florida. <laughs> and we love all of our beans Floridians. All the leguminati in Florida had to be freezing. I can't even imagine. I mean, I lived in Florida for a couple of years. 17? And it was always just 80, you yeah. know? Yeah. And foggy in the morning and humid and then maybe thunderstorms and sometimes a hurricane watches, but always just 80. And I can't that's even believe crazy pants. that's how warm it's getting in the oceans is, is uh, that it's pushing that cold air down so far. The jet stream. It's um, awful. Yeah. It's awful. Climate crisis is real, as we've been saying for 40 years. OK, <laughs> probably longer at this point. Yeah, I know. I keep thinking it's 1996 still. Hey. Also. The Irish fishermen got Russia to back down and call off their military drills. That's awesome. That, you know, yeah. hats off to the Irish fishermen. Everyone should know an Irish fisherman. <laughs> they're so rad, too. I feel like they're doing good things. Yeah. Right. I, and then you get to hear Donny O'Sullivan talk about it in his awesome accent. And I, I absolutely love it. So well played, Ireland. Nice job. Yeah. Being a, more intimidating to the Russians than uh, pretty much anyone else so far. So well played. <laughs> it's a, the, I think it's like the Irish and then BTS. If they need to do anything, they'll come they'll come in after and then everything else follows that at some point. Yeah, yeah exactly. And a little later in the show, this is very cool. CNN senior legal analyst, host of her own show on Sirius XM and now a New York Times bestselling author, Laura Coates, is going to join me to discuss her new book, Just Pursuit. And so I'm. I, you're going to love this discussion. It's absolutely amazing book too. I, I recommend everybody pick it up. It's called Just Pursuit: A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. It's really nice, really personal, really amazing, and incredibly well written. So check that out. I'm looking forward to it. And we do have a lot of news to get to from over the weekend. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. I can't believe the Bengals are going to the Super Bowl. Okay. <laughs> First up, the 1-6 committee announced Friday as part of its investigation into the January 6th attack on the Capitol and its causes. The select committee has issued subpoenas to 14 individuals who participated as purported alternate electors for the former guy. 
The committee is seeking information from individuals who met and submitted purported electoral college certificates in seven states. You know the seven. Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, New Mexico, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. We should write a song. (laughs) Chairman Thompson issued the following statement. The select committee is seeking information about attempts in multiple states to overturn the results of the 2020 election, including the planning and coordinating of efforts to send false slates of electors to the National Archives. We believe the individuals we have subpoenaed today have information about how these so-called alternate electors met and who was behind that scheme. We encourage them to cooperate with the select committee's investigation to get answers about January 6th for the American people and to help ensure nothing like that day ever happens again. And this is important because if you can just get one person to say, yeah, we knew that Joe Biden won the election and, and we were faking it. Yep. That's very important. The select committee has obtained information that groups of the individuals met on December 14th, 2020 in seven states carried by Biden, then submitted bogus slates of electoral college votes from for former President Trump. The so-called alternate electors from those states then transmitted the purported electoral college certificates to Congress, which multiple people advising former President Trump or his campaign used to justify delaying or blocking the certification of the election during the joint session of Congress on January 6th. The select committee subpoenaed individuals listed as chairperson and secretary of each group of alternate electors. So that's how they pick. They pick the chairperson and the secretary from all seven states. Seven times two is 14. Now, the committee also issued a subpoena Friday for former White House spokesman with firsthand knowledge of the former guy's behavior before and during the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And that's according to a copy of the letter accompanying the subpoena. The committee is seeking both documents and a deposition next month from the former Deputy White House Press Secretary Judd Deere, who helped with, quote, formulating White House's response to the January 6th attack as it occurred. (laughs) Sorry, he just didn't have much of a job for a while (laughs) during that time because they didn't do jack shit. He got a Judd Deere letter. (laughs) Oh, my God. In this letter to Deere, the committee specifically said it wanted to speak with him about a January 5th meeting in the Oval Office with the president. The committee said it had obtained information that Trump repeatedly asked in the meeting, what are your ideas for getting the rhinos to do the right thing tomorrow? How do we convince Congress? Deere is the latest in a wide net of individuals in the Trump orbit, both inside and outside the White House, subpoenaed by the select committee as part of its probe into the former guy's efforts to overturn the election, as well as his state of mind and intent before, during, and after the January 6th attack. The committee has already met with Deere's former boss, Kaylee McEnany. I can't imagine her being anyone's boss. Kaylee McEnany. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God, I'm Kaylee. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> Just think of the Californians <laughs> on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Dung, you know, <laughs> Kristen Wiig's face. Uh. <laughs> she appeared before the committee earlier this month after she was subpoenaed. In November, McEnany and Deere were on a long list of White House officials whose records the panel sought from the National Archives as part of the committee's efforts to learn more about how Donald responded as the attack unfolded. The document request included communications on how Trump would publicly respond to the attack and sought recordings of Trump's video messages, including outtakes filmed on January 6th, which I just think should have the Curb Your Enthusiasm theme played behind. Oh, please. And this is important because, you know, They didn't get those outtakes in that first batch and they were looking to pull more stuff in. And then I I feel like once they got them, they felt free to subpoena this dude to ask him about them. Or maybe they need to ask about them because they haven't received them yet from the archives. We'll find out. All right. We definitely will. NAG, there's over 80 House and Senate members. They wrote a letter to President Joe Biden on Wednesday urging him and his administration 
to publicly release the memo outlining his legal authority to cancel student debt. This has been a hot topic as of late. We know it was a campaign promise in part. (laughs) The president requested the department to prepare that report last year. Now, the lawmakers, including Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, also called on the president to immediately forgive $50,000 per borrower. The price tag on such a move would be around a trillion dollars. And 80% of student loan borrowers, or 36 million people, would have their debt cleared entirely. Now, since March of 2020, when the coronavirus pandemic hit the United States, the Education Department has paused student loan payments. Now, that relief has since been extended five times, but it's set to end in May. The lawmaker said Americans shouldn't be forced to resume the payments. Now, Biden has asked both the U.S. Department of Education and the U.S. Department of Justice to prepare memos on his legal authority to cancel student debt. Schumer and Warren have insisted the president has the power to do so. Now, the White House is likely weighing the legal risks of such a move. Most experts agree that the chances of Congress passing legislation to deliver the relief are close to zero, uh, I would say very close, as even some moderate Democrats oppose loan forgiveness. I think we know who who. those are. I give you two guesses. They're both (laughs) going to be right. A spokesperson for the White House said the president continues to look into what debt relief actions can be taken administratively. Now, yet, it's unclear why the reports on his power to do so haven't been released yet. The lawmakers point out in their letter that the Department of Education has had its memo for nearly 10 months at this point. Yeah. 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 And as I've said, I think the Department of Ed memo says he can. And he's just waiting on that Department of Justice Office legal counsel memo to give him the green light. Like I said, you know, I think I've said this before. I I worked for the Department of Veterans Affairs a long time, had to get tons of, you know, memos from Office of Legal Counsel telling me I could do shit. And it takes a really long time. It takes years sometimes. Or he could be waiting to do it closer to the midterms and planning to keep extending the pause on repayments until then. Yeah, we don't know. That's a good point. My beans are on. He will do it if he legally can. Oh, I agree with you. All right. Also in the news from Kyle Cheney at Politico, former President Donald Trump suggested Saturday at one of his racist rallies that he might pardon people associated with the January 6th attack on the Capitol if he were to win a second term as president. Another thing we'll do, and so many people have been asking me about it, if I run and I win, we will treat those people from January 6th fairly. We will treat them fairly, he said at a rally in Conroe, Texas. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons because they are being treated so unfairly. The comments themselves could have an effect on the Justice Department's ongoing criminal prosecution of now the more than 725 people and counting mob who breached the Capitol or attacked police outside, particularly in cases that are likely to carry stiff sentences that extend past Joe Biden's first term. Right. Because otherwise it doesn't matter if you're only going to jail for eight months or whatever. Right. We, you know, fuck you, though. The majority of those charged are facing misdemeanors with sentences that are likely to run their course before Trump could potentially reclaim the office. Oh, God. That, ugh, I know. I just chills. got a little bit nauseous. Huh? Hundreds of those facing conspiracy, obstruction and assault charges could receive sentences that land them in prison for years. Trump's hint that he might pardon people, his supporters claim have been treated unfairly, could become a calculus in their decisions to accept plea deals or enter into negotiations with prosecutors. That's like witness tampering. Some of those facing the most serious charges grumbled about the Trump's inaction in his final days in office, though captured in private messages obtained by the Justice Department, even as he pardoned dozens of other political allies. We are now and always have been on our own. So glad he was able to pardon a bunch of degenerates as his last move and shit on us on the way out. That was Ethan Nordine, leader of the Proud Boys, in one message. 
Prosecutors included it in a May 21 court filing. It also said, fuck you, Trump. You left us on the battlefield bloody and alone. (laughs) In our kilts. Lots of folks are asking if this is witness intimidation or obstruction. I tend to think it is, though we never got to see the second half of that March 2019 Bill Barr Office of Legal Counsel memo likely addressing the dangling of pardons during the Mueller probe. Nor have we seen charges from the department for any of Mueller's report, Volume 2, Obstruction of Justice incidents. And it may not be as easy to reverse those findings because Barr said he didn't obstruct justice. You'd have to actually reverse that finding and go against the Department of Justice. But the incidents that met all three elements have a statute of limitations that expire in just a few months. So we'll know soon. Oh, goodness. All right. Now, this one, we're taking you to Spotify. The chief executive of Spotify responded on Sunday to growing complaints from musicians and listeners over the role of Joe Rogan, the streaming services star podcaster, in spreading what has been widely criticized as misinformation about the coronavirus, otherwise known as lies. Last week, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, two musical icons whose cultural influence is far greater than their streaming numbers, removed their music from Spotify to protest the platform's support of Rogan. They said, we know we have a critical role to play in supporting creator. This is the CEO, okay? This is Daniel Eck. Eck? Eck? Do you know, AJ? Yeah, Eck. Eck is set. That works because it sounds like what it is. Eck. Okay. <laughs> we know we have a critical role to play in supporting creator expression while balancing it with the safety of our users. And again, that's the CEO who's also one of Spotify's founders. He wrote this in a public letter. He went on to say, in that role, it's important to me that we don't take on the position of being content censor, while also making sure that there are rules in place and consequences for those who violate them. All right. Eck made no specific mention of Rogan, who's drawn complaints for his interviews with vaccine skeptics. This month, a group of more than 200 professors and public health officials called on Spotify to remove a recent episode featuring Dr. Robert Malone, and he's an infectious disease expert. That included, quote, several falsehoods about COVID-19 vaccines, and that's according to experts' letter. Now, last week, Young and Mitchell cited those complaints when removing their music from Spotify, sparking debate throughout the music industry about what role artists can have in deciding where their music is heard. Now, Young called Spotify, quote, the home of life-threatening COVID misinformation. Mitchell wrote, irresponsible people are spreading lies that are costing people their lives. In response, many users have swarmed social media to support Young, of course, and Mitchell, and to say that they were canceling their subscriptions to Spotify Though the surface has not said how many accounts were canceled at this point. Now, X said that, yeah, of course they're not gonna. X said that at Spotify would add, quote, a content advisory notice to any podcast episode that includes a discussion about the coronavirus, directing listeners to a COVID-19 hub with facts and information. That hub includes links to health authorities like the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, as well as podcasts from news sources like BBC, CNN, and ABC News. They're basically gonna keep allowing COVID disinformation on their platform. One of the funniest tweets, if there's any humor in any of this, was from James Blunt. Did you see this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's like, if they don't pull down the misinformation about COVID-19, I'm going to put new music up on Spotify. Like, it was something like James Blunt threatened to put his music on Spotify. His new music. New music. It was so funny. I mean, what a brilliant response to a really dangerous situation at this point. I don't think people understand... Joe Rogan has a multi-million dollar contract with Spotify, and he has one of the highest listened to podcasts on their platform, if not the highest listened to. He has a massive following. That's why this is so dangerous. 11 million per episode. Yeah. And I I wish someone like Taylor Swift, you know, someone who's got 
bigger pull right now. I love Joni Mitchell. And thank you for those that have pulled out, but we need someone who has a massive effect on Spotify. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of those folks are probably in contracts. You know? Absolutely. So there's not much some people can do, although you could come out and say, I would, but I'm in a contract. But then you also threaten your contract. And right. You of course. You're getting paid. Yeah. And so it's it's sort of a double edged sword, you know? Yeah, it's not cut and dry. I get it. But at least some people are taking a stand the best way they can. Yes. Agreed. And I hope more artists follow. All right. We'll be right back with Laura Coates to discuss her New York Times bestseller, Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's AG. And today's show is brought to you by Helix Sleep. Sleeping poorly definitely does not make you feel good. It has the opposite effect. And I used to have trouble getting good sleep and staying asleep. I would struggle to fall asleep, would lay there awake most of the night, tossing and turning. And thankfully, I discovered Helix Sleep. And after taking their online quiz at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans, I discovered my sleep issues were caused by my mattress. Each Helix mattress caters to a specific sleeping style and body type. And you can choose from a wide array of mattresses, from soft, medium, and firm, to body temperature regulating mattresses. They have mattresses that align your spine if you have a bad back. And they even have the Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. And the Helix Midnight Bed was just what I was looking for because I'm a side sleeper who prefers a medium firm mattress. And due to Helix, I'm able to sleep instantly. I wake up feeling refreshed and alert. As you know, they have over 12,000 five-star reviews and they were awarded number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired and leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine. Also highly recommend Helix to help improve your sleep. They have a 10-year warranty. You get to try it out for 100 sleeps risk-free. And they have financing options and flexible payment plans, so a great night's sleep is never far away. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for listeners at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. That's helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash dailybeans for up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows. Everybody, welcome back. Joining me today is the host of The Laura Coach Show on SiriusXM. CNN senior legal analyst and New York Times bestselling author of the new book, Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. Please welcome Laura Coates. Laura, hello. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. I get to see you now. I hear your podcast. I hear you on Serious Beyond with me. And I just love that I get to actually see you now. Hello. Hello. And yes, thank you for having me on your show. I absolutely love coming on your show because the way that you discuss things with guests, it gets personal and it gets it's important, I think, and it's very educational. And I, I love it. And I, I really feel the same way about this book because, you know, I was we were just talking before we got in here. I'm like, most of the justice books I read and the politics books I read are very like black and white and this is this and blah, blah, blah. And, but you like bring yourself into it. And I think that that's truly important. And I wanted to ask you what prompted you to take this direction with with your book, Just Pursuit? You know, I'm glad you said that. And thank you for that as well, because I think most people expect lawyers in general to write a book that's like kind of a legal textbook you could find in a classroom. It's going to be a Supreme Court case. And you sort of talk about the context it has in society. But I was very intentional about wanting it to be a narrative memoir because I wanted people really to have a a vicarious journey. I wanted them not just to know what the law was and how it's been interpreted by courts, but what the law feels like. And the only way to do that is to really have these stories that really personify the issues we're all talking about, from mistaken identity to victim blaming and the Me Too movement to 
what it's like to really monitor elections in the South, to issues around a redemption and lenience in the court justice system. I mean, all these different factors come into play. And because it was such a personal journey that I took and a personal battle of allegiance, I wanted people to understand it from my perspective in a way that I hope resonates, that we all sort of have our own battles of allegiance between our lived experience and every facet of our identity, and then what we're asked to do, what we think our job is supposed to be. And I I think it's the most impactful to have it through storytelling as opposed to, here's a dry textbook that, and I do love law school classrooms, but a dry textbook you'd actually find in a legal classroom. I didn't want that. Yeah. And I mean, that sort of reaches into the whole concept of how the law should be applied, right? If we just apply, you know, the idea in a perfect society is we apply the law equally to everyone, but that is not the world that we live in and things need to be taken on a more personal case by case basis. Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, something that I think really is one of the underpinnings of, of this book is the, the kind of clash between who you are and how you, how you identify as a person and the fact that we live in a country that has, has two systems of justice that is supposed to be equally applied, but is clearly not. Well, you know very well, and your audience, by following you, knows that the nature of your advocacy and is, is very nuanced. The idea of understanding that someone's identity and what makes them who they are, a holistic approach to the way we look at people, is critical in any fair society, period, full stop. And yet we have this notion that you're supposed to somehow shed who you are at the door when you walk into a courtroom. Even though jurors don't do that, really judges don't do that as well, even with the cloaked black robe. And we as human beings should not be doing that in a way that has that sort of hear no evil, speak no evil, say no evil. It's almost like a disservice that the justice system, the Justice Department has as its mascot, a blindfolded person. Because it's as if it says to themselves, well, as long as we don't really see something, the end will justify the means. And that's just not how it can really be if you're talking about justice and fairness. And so I've never had the luxury, ever once, nor have I think I ever wanted the luxury of leaving myself at the door before I walk into a boardroom, a classroom, a courtroom, on a media panel, whatever it might be. And I think that it's incumbent upon all of us to get out of the mindset of thinking that objectivity and thinking that fairness and justice require you to lose yourself and forget your lived experience. And it is an example. I mean, there are moments when, when we think about justice in a very binary way, in, this, in the form of, hey, it's either a conviction or an acquittal. And as long as that happens at the end, justice has been achieved. But I begin the book talking about how the pursuit of justice can actually create injustice because thinking about it in that binary way, we forget everyone who's impacted along the way everyone who is victimized, everyone who's in the periphery, everyone who really needs to have fairness applied as well. And so for me, I really wanted to make sure this book um, spoke to that, spoke to the ideas of those inner conflicts. And you know, there were times, and I write about in the book, there were times when my moral compass pointed one direction and the orders I was given pointed in a completely different direction. But I was told, that that direction was in pursuit of justice, when it just didn't feel right. And so how do we battle and how do we really resolve these issues? This is what normally happens and really the, the crux of the issue in our justice system is that they can't be reconciled. And I wanted people to sort of feel that chasm and go from there. Yeah, and, and, and people are not only obviously different from other people and everyone's case is different, 
we apply the law equally. We're supposed to, but everyone's case is different and everything is different. But people themselves change in legal definition, even within the scope of a trial. And I'm thinking of the story, which one of the ones who's, I mean, these are all incredible stories in this book, but the one about Babyface and the end just was a gut punch. Can you talk a little bit about that particular case that you prosecuted and and how things change and why those changes are important? I'm glad you hone in on that one, because for me, that was a story that I think of that person almost every day. Um, I think about where I really worked. I think about the school he went to. I think about, I wonder where his family is from time to time. I wonder about him. And that's how I feel about the cases that I worked on. Every chapter is episodic and stands alone to really focus on these issues that we're we're personifying what we're talking about. And that one was about a case where um, a very young looking, impressionable man was on trial for possession of a gun. Okay. And it was very clear to me that he was consistently making choices that were against his best interests. And as a prosecutor, obviously, I wielded a great deal of discretion. And in terms of plea offers or in terms of how I strategized or, or conveyed the case, I had a great deal of, in, in, of um, independence in that. But one thing I could never do really was lead the horse to water and make it drink when it comes to somebody who I thought was making the wrong decision about whether to go to trial or whether to take a plea, or whether to craft a defense a certain way. And this story talks about how this young man just could not seem to make the choices that I felt were best for him, even if it meant that he could be acquitted, even if it meant that he'd have an opportunity to a second chance. And even though he was given sort of the opportunity to do so through the process of um, having another witness come in, he just would not essentially snitch on somebody who may, who claimed to be the person who was the gun owner. And even though I believe we were prosecuting the correct person who actually possessed the gun, it was still an opportunity for him to use the leverage that he would have had in that moment that I could not have removed. And yet he still made choices that were against his own self-interest. And I, I think it, it comes, the story was important because on the one hand, it shows you in some respects the extraordinary power of a prosecutor but also the very limited power Mm. in terms of wanting to help someone, so to speak, do what is in their interest. When you say to someone, I'm giving this opportunity, can you take it? What happens when they refuse? Do you then essentially say, I'm just going to stop prosecuting because I think that you just need a second chance and you're making the wrong choices? Or you follow the directives you're given and say, you've had the opportunity it was yours to take advantage of. You chose not to. And then more importantly, what a jury feels about it. You know, when you still leave it in the hands of a jury to say, you guys decide what's best here. And they're looking and watching and wanting the person and rooting almost for the person who's the defendant. And they make choices that are still against their own self-interest. And and what what that that feeling of loyalty must have been like for that defendant compared to what was not reciprocated for the person he was trying to protect. And um, for me, it was such a moment of scratching my head and trying to will this person to do what I had hoped in a way that I hadn't normally had to do as a prosecutor. Normally, I'm, I'm really willing the case to go in my direction in terms of prosecution and, of course, conviction. And there it was, 
can I give this person a leg to stand on? And let's see what he does with it. Let me just see. And that was against what my supervisors wanted me to do. It was more that kind of the, the kill mentality of go for it. You, you got a wood in your hand. What are you doing? And me thinking, let me leave it in the hands of those who might find, find sympathy in them. And, and it also speaks to an issue of these sort of arbitrary cutoffs we give people for second chances in terms of at what age you allow somebody to be treated as a youthful offender versus somebody who's an adult. And how it makes all the difference in the world that one choice, that one arbitrary cutoff can change the course of somebody's history in life. Yeah. And and at the end, the, the judge asked after the verdict came back how old the defendant yeah. was for the for those very specific purposes. Right. And um, very angry. He's very angry that he didn't have now his hands were tied. Yeah. You see, the idea of the choices that people make can tie the hands of those in the justice system who even want to be helpful. And I think that's surprising to people to find that sometimes that power is limited, even by a judge being able to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. And that those are just the lines and they're just there. Mm-hmm. And it has to be so frustrating, especially given the fact of, you know, why so many black and brown people end up in the courtrooms in the first place, you know, given the whole history going, I mean, going back 400 years, you know, but then, you know, even in these very individual you know, leave all that behind for a second, which you can't, but, you know, all odds being even if if they were, you're still not, you know, the limited, the power that you have is so limited, so great, but it's also so right. very limited by these, by these lines, by these, you know, just lines that you have to stand. And I want to ask you a little bit about how we can remedy this, because, you know, we talk about the arc of justice, you know, the, the quote, the Martin Luther King quote, we talk about it bending toward justice and but it doesn't bend by itself, right? It, it it needs us. What do we do? Is it is it about who people appoint into positions of power? Who are public defenders and who are prosecutors? Or is it more about the system itself needing reform or, or both? It's a combination of all of them. And I think just when we talk about how justice is not that binary conclusion of a trial or a verdict, we have to stop thinking about justice reform in the limited context of what happens during police encounters. Those are very important. Obviously, they're highly publicized. They are heartbreaking. We can think about the watching for all of us, the murder of George Floyd, or seeing the cases involving, um, you know, Elijah McClain out of Colorado, and Frankie or Tamir Rice. And the list, frankly, sadly goes on longer than this show could even last over the course of a week, right? You just say names of people. But those are as important, but they are also instances where if we limit it to just saying, let's reform it by thinking about the Fourth Amendment stop and seizure policies. Well, then what about other aspects of it? How about the idea that we have a presumption of innocence in this country? We have to pay to access that through our bail system. Mm-hmm. Look at Khalif Browder, a young boy accused of um, stealing a backpack. If he's in solitary confinement in the most one of the most notorious jails in the country. The idea of what happened to Sandra Bland, which we don't really still know in Texas, of why, why she was unable to make bail. And how about so many hundreds of thousands of people every week who are accused of a crime, have a presumption of innocence, are locked up and are at a disadvantage at that point, being able to really truly defend themselves. Can't can no longer have the gainfully employed, which, which stacks against you when you're talking about if you're convicted in the sentencing not being gainfully employed, not having ties to a community, and the pressure of now saying, either I take a plea offer and I still believe and I still know I'm innocent and um, get out possibly one day, or I take the chance of having the book thrown at me and no one believes I'm innocent. 
that's a very difficult thing to wrestle with and think about justice system. The Supreme Court in, is involved in this as well, in the sense of having judicially created doctrines of qualified immunity, which have the hurdle um, bar so high to be able to have civil liability. Or the Graham versus Connor decision, which says, look, we are going to judge an officer's use of force under a reasonable officer standard, not a reasonable person standard. Therefore, prosecutors say, I can't meet the bar knowing the benefits of the doubt that are given to um, officers every single day. And it's all, it's even enough in our, in our wide years. One of the questions all prosecutors ask is, are you going to give uh, more weight to an officer by virtue of them being an officer? And nearly across the board, people say, well, yeah, because it's an officer. So why would they lie? Even people who understand that officers are fallible and that there are, as in every um, education or every in, um, uh, sector of the employment, there are the bad apples, so to speak. They'll still old women say yes. These are just a few of the areas to talk about, not just the limited context that we seem to, to focus on. And the reason that's important is because Congress already does not have the political appetite to be able to do a comprehensive and holistic approach. And so any off-ramp you give in the form of, I didn't like the slogan you used, therefore I can you know, turn a blind eye, or you know what? I tried. I tried to tackle the limited issue related to police encounters. I couldn't do that, so never mind. And then they sort of pat themselves on the back that they were able to tell voters, you know, they can. So we have to really um, be vigilant, but also very comprehensive and bold enough to say, well, I'm happy to whittle it down, but I'd like the sky. <laughs> now, which star can you give me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I mean, there's there's also that dissonance that that everyone feels between the federal system and the state and local systems. So we have like really like nine systems of justice when you think about it. But, you know, and on the federal level, the attorney general can and has banned no knock warrants and banned chokeholds, certain chokeholds. But they can't do that for the rest of policing in America, only the federal cops and federal agents. And so it's 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 very limited. And it also, you know, when you Look at the person who's in solitary confinement in one of the most notorious prisons in the world for the stolen backpack. And then you look at somebody who smeared feces on the inside of the Capitol Rotunda getting 24 months of probation. And you're like, why is this? And, you know, trying to bridge that gap between federal systems and state and local systems is also very hard to do and hard to see. It's hard to see one system of justice when there are so many. You're right. And I mean, and a patchwork of the systems of justice, you've got individual police forces that are not, you know, there's not a connective tissue other than a, a standard uniform or a, a similar looking badge. And so that's part of the issue as well. And the patchwork of laws and the laws that are prioritized. But I also write about this in the book and begin talking about also the idea of um, the way in which we create an equal playing field when it comes to the definition of criminals. But we don't do that in other categories. For example, um, the book really begins talking about an instance when I had to an aid in a deportation of a man who's, who was illegally in the country. He'd been there since he's a teenager. He had not so much as sneezed in the direction of a police officer since that moment. But he had his car stolen. And his car was stolen by somebody with a lengthy rap sheet the kind of criminal that we have a best interest in having be removed from the streets. But because of one's immigration status and one's actual theft of a vehicle, amidst other things as well, we treated these people as the same. 
We treated them as the same type of criminal for whom, you know, um, they had to have a similar outcome in terms of being arrested, detained, and then, you know, sent away. And even that, in that instance, thinking about the ways in which, is that the kind of level playing field we were talking about in the justice system? Is that what we think is fair or right? And it speaks to somehow, sometimes how our political policies can undermine even the pursuit of justice. Because if it's in our interest, as you know, you know, I when I was a prosecutor, compared to being in private practice, when I had private clients, as in this person was my client, this company was my client. When I stood up and said Laura Coates on behalf of the people of the United States, it wasn't the individual victim who represented. It was all of society who was offended. It includes the so-called victimless crimes of drug possessions. I'm not even thinking about those cases, mm. even though they're not, or piracy can be that, you know, not a victimless crime, the way we talk about it, society being offended. And um, if we, if it's because society is offended and we want to make sure somebody is accountable so there's not another future victim, then why would we make it so difficult for people to report crimes and actually follow through on our goal of making sure it's not a future criminal, future victim of a crime. Instead, we give this choice of, well, either you can remain in the shadows and not be deported and um, not, you know, report the crime, but be victimized again and again and again, either it's an employer who won't give you fair wages, whether you're a, it's a domestic violence or an intimate partner or somebody is harming you and you cannot have any recourse, or we say, we have an increase in people reporting crimes. And, we, and even if it means you're coming out of the shadows to do so, we'll be criminalized for that decision because it helps society. We make it very difficult to decide what to do. And I think that's part of where that reform-minded notions come into play of just what makes sense. What do we really want? Yeah. The two sometimes meet, sometimes not. Yeah. True. And I, I absolutely... I love this book. It's brilliant. It's personal. It's a personal look at justice. You tear down that compartmentalization and I absolutely love it. It's enthralling. I, I suggest everybody pick it up. And at the Laura Coach Show, by the way, is on Sirius XM POTUS channel 124, Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Amazing show. And the book is called Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. I appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for all the work you do. I'm constantly learning from you. We all are. So thank you so much. Thank you. Right back at you. And uh, keep going over. Are you still at GW? I am. T- I have taken some time off from there because I have just been have so much things going on. And with COVID and everything else, I have not been teaching for a while. And but I hope to get back soon one day. That'd be fun. Yeah, but, but this book is also teaching us a lot as well. So <laughs> <laughs> you never stop, Laura. You never stop and appreciate it. Thank you. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give.
All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Ah, uh, Monday good news. My favorite good news. Actually, it's all my favorite. It is. Honest. I'm looking at this first one and I so deserve this correction. I'm almost embarrassed by it. I know you're going to get to it soon, but yeah. <laughs> okay. And, you know, I, I want to tell everyone, if you have anything to send in, please do. And really, it's we're just taking anything at this point. And uh, if you have any ideas of what to send it, like I love the new, like I love the Whoopi stories right now. Oh, yeah. Those make me happy. Spaghetti squash. Who doesn't need a soft spaghetti squash to sleep with? I know. I know. And then there's also like a meme going around or a, a thing going around on Twitter about w- what was in your grandparents' house. And mine was plastic covered furniture. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's like, why the hell did they do that? It was to, to keep the people from putting cigarette burns in the furniture because everybody smoked oh. and and to keep the smell from like soaking into the fabric. So I did not know that. Good we all know. peeled ourselves off plastic furniture. All right. I'm going to kick us off with a, a submission from Laura, pronouns she and her. And this is a correction you just mentioned. Hello, wonderful beanies. Longtime listener, first time writer. Clarifying some misheard Taylor Swift lyrics. I know lots of folks here, Starbucks lovers. Then Dana said star-crossed lovers. Nope. The actual <laughs> lyric is, got a long list of ex-lovers. Fun fact about this song, Blank Space. The media were dragging Taylor for dating too much and essentially being a man-eater. So she wrote this song as sort of a parody of the character they were claiming she was. Taylor is the queen of taking what people say about her, twisting it and using it for inspiration. A strong woman who stands up for herself, just like you beans queens. She also publicly spoke out against Republicans and Donald. Guess the mutt. We're doing a what the mutt here included for pod pet tax. See if you can guess what Willow is. Oh, Willow's beautiful. This is Pitbull. Definitely Pitbull. I love the marking. Um... What else do you see here? Maybe a lab? I get, maybe, I don't know. She looks a little, not husky-ish, but I don't know if there's something that's smaller than a husky, but just furry. eyes. She knows she's perfect. Let's see what the answer is. Akita oh. and Pitbull. Aha, ah. I can see it. I can see I it. I can she's- too. 75% Akita, actually, and only nice. 25% Pibble. Pibble. Nice. Laura, thank you for the correction. And I just want to say, I hope you guys have heard, and you all, excuse me, you all have heard um, Taylor's new song. I think it's called The Man, um, something like that. But basically, she's talking about if I did everything I have in my career, I would be the fucking man at this point instead of having the press destroy me, which it's really good. You should listen to the lyrics. It's outstanding. Love her. All right. This next one's up from Robert, pronouns he and him. How sweet it is at 84 years old to begin once again to take a few steps in recovery from a fractured femur and hip. Oh my goodness. The excruciating pain from the results from a fall have now diminished considerably and the prospect of a future return to normalcy now seems somehow finally realistic. Keep up the good work. Robert, sending you strength, my friend, one step at a time. I'm so glad you're able to be a little more mobile. Awesome. Oh man, that that pain is tough. That is tough pain too. You want to take the next one too, my friend? I'm happy to. This is from Shalice. Uh, No, Shalice, who we've had before, I believe. This is from Shalice, pronoun she and her. Dear ladies of the legumes, for your whoopee review pleasure, I present Blimpy. Blimpy started life 45 years ago as a pillow based on the art of Richard Scarry that my mother's best friend sewed as a baby gift. This pillow was my constant companion throughout my childhood and teenage years. 
I've taken Blimpy around the world with me during my travels, including Australia, Europe, and Costa Rica. I passed Blimpy down to my son when he was born in 2009. However, that is where things take a tragic turn. My husband, bless his heart, decided one day that Blimpy needed a good wash and threw him into the washing machine. What happened next was a tragedy of Hindenburg proportions. The machine tore a giant ass hole across the top of my beloved pillow. After a good cry and much guilt tripping of the husband, we had Blimpy professionally framed so that his memory could live on <laughs> with us in perpetuity. I love your show and I want to thank you and your team for keeping us informed and hopeful. Oh my oh. goodness. Look at Blimpy. What a sweet pillow. I That's love the so animals. Cute. I know. I love that you framed it. Well done, Shalice. That's awesome. That's a great Wooby story. It really is. All right. Next up from Mooney, pronouns she and her. Hey, A-G-D-G-A-C and the rest. Sydney and I listen to you every morning with our breakfast and coffee of floof snackers. Floof. Or floof snackers, depending on whether one is human or floof. When Sydney hears the little tone for MSW Media, badong, she perks up and she's ready for her daily beans, even if she's in a deep sleep. Oh, how cute. And again, I have to thank They Might Be Giants for making that for us. I just am so blessed. Okay. Uh, and I'm, I'm an atheist, but I'm still blessed. Okay. I am sharing my whoobies with you today. I still have the two bears that I was given when I was born. I also have my childhood whoobie, Henry Dog, and my brother's Henry Dog as well. That's especially meaningful as we lost him, my brother, right after the election. Oh, I'm sorry. My Henry dog is wearing a dress from when I was a baby, and I I called her Henrietta. (laughs) I also have a current day whoopee that sits on my nightstand. It's a badger. It's the softest whoopee. And I do give it a cuddle when needed, including are my whoopee and pet taxes. Oh, Oh my God. Look at the skunk. (laughs) It's a badger. It's the honey badger. Don't give a (laughs) shit. I know. It's a honey badger. Oh, look. I'm sorry I called it a skunk. Mooney, I know it's a honey badger. Oh my gosh, look. Oh. Oh, the dog is. I mean, it's so sweet. It's so mm. sweet. I love that we find comfort in soft things. I know. It makes I me know. happy. That's All right. This next one's from Meg, pronounced she and her. Hey, AGDG, Amy, and Leguminati. Thank you so much for all that you do. You've given me info and hope in these dark times. I finally have some good news to share. My husband and I recently relocated from Texas to Nebraska. And I had applied for our county's master gardener program. I just found out this week that I made the cut. I love the pun. (laughs) I cannot wait to grow everything that I can and nerd out with fellow plant people. I hear y'all like standard poodles. So I've included pics of ours, Uh, Balder and Modi, along with our whoobies. The monkey and the turtle whoobies have been with my husband in all of his deployments. And Wilbur, the turtle has been his protector and companion through all of his travels. Thank you again, and have a great weekend. Oh, my God. (laughs) Awesome. And thank you to your husband for his service. Look at these babies. Beanie babies make great whoobies, by the way, because they're just fun. You you take them with you. I've had an elephant on my dresser that the first time I froze on stage, AG, and I forgot what I was supposed to say next, because, you know, when you're first starting, you sort of have a script. Yeah, You don't really, you know, improv on stage. And I couldn't remember the next joke. And so my sister gave me a little elephant uh, the next day or sometime that week so that I would never forget again because elephants have incredible memories. And I've had it on my dresser since 2003. Wow. What a cool story. Yeah. And what a great gift. Right? 
super sweet. These sandal poodles. Oh my God. Look at the snaggle teeth at the end. <laughs> I know. I know. The last picture. That's what I was giggling about. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. I love when dogs do that because they look at you like, what? I look totally mm-hmm. normal and I don't understand why you're laughing. <laughs> and I look smart. I look very smart. Look how smart I am. Look, look how smart I am with my fur, 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 fur. I love how they just sit and stare. <laughs> These are such cool dogs. Fur, Thank fur, you fur, for fur. sharing that, Meg. This is awesome. I love those whoobies. I do too. They're sweet. I love these stories. It makes them, I don't know, they're just all warm and fuzzy. And like I said, I love that as adults, we can still find such joy in our childhood gifts, yeah. our comfort our comfort pieces. Yes, please send in all your whoobie stories or loveies, whatever you call them. I'm absolutely, this is like my new favorite thing. I know. But, I, but any good news, any pod pet picks, anything you want to send in, you can do it at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact Dana. Yes. Any final thoughts? I today do. Just a reminder. About the Bengals. No, I, I actually have to say this. I wanted Kansas City to win. I love Mahomes. I think he's just a class act. I am also happy for the Bengals. I think a year ago, they'd only won four games. They'd been so bad for so long. And to see them go to the Super Bowl, I like a good underdog story. Do I want them to beat my Rams, assuming the Rams are in? No, I don't. But I don't know the outcome of that game yet because we're recording it right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That was a hell of a comeback. It really was. Yeah. To, to be honest. It I really didn't, was. I, I didn't think you'd be able to beat Mahomes in, in Kansas City. Uh, no, in Kansas City. Yeah. Good times. All right. Well, was that your final thought? Oh, no. I just wanted to, <laughs> as the date gets closer, um, tickets are still available for my show in New York. If you're getting this late and you didn't know about it, it's going to be at the Green Room 42 on Wednesday, February 9th. It's a 7 p.m. show. Numbers in New York look fantastic right now. They're, they're, they've just plummeted. Omicron is you know almost out of the city. There are good things happening. So if you feel safe, and I hope that you do. Uh, you'll join in person. It always feels nice to have people in person when you're doing comedy. So mm-hmm. you can get those tickets at thegreenroom42.com and just go to their ticket information site. Awesome. Uh, that's going to be amazing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And everybody, thank you uh, until tomorrow. Uh, first of all, if you haven't checked out the MSW Book Club and Muller She Wrote from Sunday, you should do that. And then we'll be back tomorrow. I don't know who the guest is going to be yet. I haven't, I don't actually have anybody booked. So I'm, it's, it's going to be interesting. It could be anyone. We'll anyone. see. I love <laughs> it. Be. So there's the tease. Might not be anyone at all. Who knows? But it's going to be rad because Dana will be here with me. And until then, everyone, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been AG. And I've been DG. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for the Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com.